Hebrews chapter 11. Our verse today is verse 5 on Enoch. By faith, Enoch. We'll read verses 1 to 6. 1 to 6. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of the Lord, or by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Lord, these are our prayers as well. We pray that as we approach this study of your word to understand the life of Enoch and how you worked in him and how you were pleased by him and glorified by his life, that you'll teach us also to walk with you, to have full confidence in this word and what it teaches us. And may we esteem right everything that we hear. May we understand that everything is true and everything is righteous from your holy word. In the name of Christ, amen. The prophet Amos said in Amos 3.3, do two men walk together unless they have an agreement, unless they are in agreement, unless they, have in, they are in a kindred spirit and have harmony. Do two men walk together? Do they walk together peacefully unless they are of the same mind? And of course the answer is no. The, the only way that they can walk together is if they are in agreement. The only way they can walk together and not harm each other is if they are of the same mind. They walk together because they are agreeable to one another. That's the way it works. In the case of Enoch, it says that Enoch walked with God, which means that Enoch walked with God because he was in agreement with God, he was in harmony with God, he was at peace with God, he was pleasing to God, he had a kindred spirit to God, his heart was longing for the heart of God. This is the way Enoch is described in our passage in Hebrews 11, verse 5. Now this is very contrary to what we see in the world. What we see in the world is people who walk together, but they don't walk together to do righteousness if they are in agreement. They walk together to do wickedness. They walk together to worship idols and practice immorality. In the world also, if you see people walking together or together, they are often doing things that are against one another. They are hateful, they're spiteful, they're slanderous, they do things against each other, and there's always conflict and war going on. That's not right either. We'll learn here that by faith, we won't be that way 
By faith, we will walk with God and God will be so pleased with us that he will bless us. Let's see how he illustrates this by Enoch himself. Firstly, who was this Enoch that he describes? He assumes that we already know who he is and we should know who he is. If we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. Genesis 5, 21, we read about who Enoch is. Enoch is described in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God took him, or God took him away, or God took him up, is the point that he's making. In this passage, we have a lineage or genealogy going from Adam to Noah. Enoch is a descendant of Adam. He's a descendant of Adam, and he is the seventh generation from Adam. Adam being the first generation, then Enoch would be the seventh. This is who Enoch is in this passage. Therefore, he is an ancestor and a patriarch of the faithful, and he is an ancestor in the literal sense of not only Noah, but also Abraham and also um, all the rest of those who are on the earth after the days of Noah. This is who Enoch was. So, notice in verses uh, 22, 22 and 24 of Genesis, Enoch walked with God. He walked with God, and he had a family. And then in 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, meaning he disappeared. He was translated, or he was raptured. He was taken up, as it says in the next phrase. For God took him. This means Enoch did not die. Enoch did not experience death in the usual way. That's what he means here in Genesis chapter 5, which is also what our apostle says in Hebrews eleven five. It says that he did not see death. He did not see death. Only... Two individuals in the Bible did not see physical death. They did not see physical death were Enoch and Elijah. Enoch and Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 2, we can read about how Elijah also was taken up by God miraculously, just like Enoch was taken up by God miraculously, because Enoch and even Elijah, they were so faithful to God. They walked with God by faith, so much that they were pleasing to him that God decided that it was time to remove them from the wicked world and take them up into heaven to be with him. This is what God did. That's who Enoch was. And notice, back to Hebrews eleven five, he says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was also taken up in the permanent sense of the word. Because we do know in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Apostle Paul was taken up to the third heaven, but he was taken up temporarily. Because after he was taken up temporarily, he continued his ministry, and eventually he was put to death. 
He was put to death by the Romans, the Apostle Paul was, and he knew he was going to be so in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So this Enoch was miraculously taken up by God so that he should not see death. That's the way that it happened with him. And further, he clarifies in Hebrews 11:5, and he was not found because God took him up. If it wasn't clear in the first part of the verse, he makes it clear he was not found. He was not, like it says in Genesis, he was not found. That is, the people thought, oh, he must have disappeared and gone from one place to another place because God took him from one area or one city and perhaps he took him to a town or to a village. So let's go on a search. Let's go hunting for him and find him to see if we can discover where God took him. Now we do know that that happened in the case of Philip in Acts chapter 8. Philip, he was sent to the Ethiopian eunuch and then he disappeared and went to another place because God miraculously by his spirit did so. But not in the case of Enoch. Not in this case. We also know in Elijah's case that Elijah, Elijah was told, uh, uh, was telling Elisha, the prophet, that he would be taken up. And then the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, the successor of Elijah, they said, let's go find him. God must have taken him from one place to another place. And Elijah said, do not go. Do not go. But the sons of the prophet didn't listen. They went from place to place. And they went looking for Elijah, not believing that God had actually taken him from the earth to heaven. And when, God, uh, when they went looking, they couldn't find him. They were exhausted and they gave up the search. That's when Elisha said, did I not say to you, do not go? Well, in this case, Enoch did not experience any kind of temporary shift or transition from one place to another. He actually went to heaven to be with God. It says, God took him up. This is a miracle, and this miracle happened because of the faith that Enoch had and the righteous way in which he lived, he walked with God. I say this because there are some interpreters throughout history, and especially today, who actually say that Enoch's death is not recorded in the Bible. They say, the Bible isn't telling us the truth. The Bible isn't reliable. Enoch actually died. Everybody dies. There's no miracles. Enoch died, and there are no miracles. It's just that the Bible is saying it in odd ways that he actually did die when he did not die, actually. He did not die. They say the Bible teaches uh, that he actually did die. They misinterpret and misapply the Bible. That's why this passage in Hebrews 11.5 is so important. It's evident enough from Genesis chapter 5 that he did not die. But the apostle makes it even more clear because he knows even in his day there are unbelievers who misinterpret Moses in Genesis chapter 5. Yet we cannot do that. He was not found because God took him up. Now we have to ask, why did God take him up? Why was it that Enoch did not experience death? Death in the usual way. Why? Verse 5 says, For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. He was pleasing to God. God. 
This was the witness that we read about in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis 5, Moses records the way in which Enoch lived his life. He walked with God. And walking with God here is said to be pleasing to God. To walk with God is to please Him, to do His will, to be in harmony with Him. Not to have God as our enemy, but to have God as our friend. This is what it means to be pleasing to God. Enoch lived his life this way. He lived a life that desired to know the will of God and to do the will of God by faith. He not only had faith, but that faith desired to do the will of God. He was pleasing to God. Now, we might ask, in what ways was Enoch pleasing to God? In what ways was he pleasing to God? Well, let's see one way in which he was from Jude. Jude, go to the book of Revelation and back one book. Jude and verse 14. Jude 14. Actually, let's go back to verse 11. Let's go to Jude 11 and read from there to give us some context. Jude 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude in verses 11 to 13, and also verse 16, 15 and 16, he describes the wicked world. He describes people who are overtly or covertly enemies of the gospel. That's who he describes. Then in verse 14 he says, and about these also Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam. He tells us that this Enoch First, he identifies who he is because there is another Enoch in Genesis chapter 4, a descendant of Cain. He was the son of Cain, and then Cain built a city and named the city after his son's name, Enoch. That's not the Enoch we're uh, talking about, not in the line of wicked Cain, but we're talking about the one who is in the line of Adam, the seventh generation from Adam. It is this Enoch that he has here describing that Enoch even preached against all of the wickedness of his day. He preached against the wicked people of his day. He says in 14, And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. He prophesied and preached against the wicked people all around him and even the wicked people of the future. 
and that one day there would be a day of judgment. He prophesied that one day there would be a day of judgment. You see that? He, he's called in verse 14, firstly, he's called a prophet. He's called a prophet because a prophet exhorts the people, they tell the people the way of life and the way of death. If they pursue the way of life, there's eternal life. If they pursue the way of death, there is eternal death in hell forever. This is what a prophet does. He presents to the people the two ways. But also a prophet will predict the future. Even in his exhortation of life and death, he's predicting the future. But the other way in which he's predicting the future is he's saying specific things about the future that will happen. That Christ will return. That there is a day of judgment. That we must be prepared for that day. And if we are not prepared for that day, then we will be thrown into hell, the lake of fire. That's what Enoch did right there. It says in 14, he prophesied. And he prophesied by saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The Lord came. Who is this Lord? It's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. He mentions him first in verse 4. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The Lord, he means in verse 14, is the Lord Jesus. So Enoch was preaching the Lord Jesus. He was preaching the Lord Jesus. He believed in the Lord Jesus. He preached in the, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And he teaches in his own generation and for us, that the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The Lord Jesus came, and he uses the past tense. You may ask, why does he say it in the past tense? Enoch is preaching about the future to him, and even future to us, but he uses the past tense. Why? Because the prophets sometimes use the past tense in order to convey to us the certainty of that future event. They convey the past tense, the Lord came when the Lord Jesus has not come again yet. They use the past in order to remind us and to assure us of the certainty of that future event. For example, Isaiah the prophet, that this is one clear example. Isaiah in chapter 53, Isaiah 53, he says, things about Christ's death in the past tense, even though Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus died on the cross. He says, he was despised and forsaken of men, acquainted with sorrow, acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused, which is past tense, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, Isaiah speaks in the past tense because he is looking to the future and trying to assure us of the certainty of those future events, that it's basically a done deal. We speak like that also, right? We speak and when we talk to others about something yet future, we say, okay, it's done, I'll, it's, it's done. I'll take care of it in the future, but we also speak of it in the past, it's done. And that's the way the prophets are doing it to assure us that it will happen. That's why it says there in verse 14, Jude 14, Behold, the Lord came. But with whom did he come? The Lord Jesus came with many thousands of his holy ones. With many thousands of his holy ones. If we cross-reference this with other places in Scripture, such as 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew chapter 24, we know that when Jesus returns... He's going to come 
with his holy angels and he's going to come with his saints. That is you and me, if we are already with him in heaven before the end of the world, we will come with Jesus and even the angels, the holy angels will come with Jesus when this event occurs. Enoch is preaching this. Enoch is saying that angels, holy, powerful, chosen angels will come with Jesus on that day of his return. And we, as his holy ones, will come with him. A holy one in the Bible is the same as saying a saint. Like we people, we who are redeemed in Christ, we are called saints. We are the ones who will come. And when we come, what will happen to the wicked people? What Enoch preached. He preached to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch preaches the day of judgment. He preaches that ungodly people, they need to be convicted of their sins because they have done ungodly deeds in an ungodly way. They are ungodly people who have done ungodly deeds in an ungodly way. And not only that, but they have spoken harsh things, all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, have spoken against Christ. Ungodly people not only speak against us and do things against us, but they do things against God himself and even the Lord Jesus himself. And one day, as we read in Micah chapter 4, one day God will resolve all this. One day there's a day of reckoning. One day, this day of judgment will show who is on the right and who is on the wrong. Who is doing the will of God, who is walking with God, who is pleasing to God, and who is against God, who is displeasing to God. The day of judgment will come, and that's what will happen. Enoch is preaching this, according to Jude. Way back then, way back then, centuries and millennia before the time of Christ and his death and resurrection, Enoch was preaching this. And by the way, if Enoch is preaching the second coming of Christ, which this verse proves, the second coming of Christ assumes the first coming of Christ. Enoch is not only preaching the second coming of Christ and the day of judgment, but he's also, by implication, preaching that Jesus will come in his first coming to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and to rise from the dead on the third day, to ascend into heaven, to ascend into heaven, and then we need to preach that first coming of Christ to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. We, that's what Enoch did, and that's what we need to do. We need to preach the first coming of Christ as the way to prepare ourselves for the second coming of Christ. If we repent and believe in the gospel, then we will be ready when he returns. This is what Enoch preached. And this is what we need to preach. So when we go around and we talk to our friends and family, we go around talking to people about the gospel of Christ, what do we need to preach? We need to preach about the first coming of Christ as a preparation for the second coming of Christ. This is what we must preach. We must preach this. Not, God wants you to be happy all the time. Not that God wants you healthy and wealthy all the time. 
Not that everything will always go well in your life. If you believe in the gospel, everything will always go well for you. This is not what the true prophets do. Enoch did not preach like this. Jesus did not preach like this. The apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament did not preach like this. They preached that we are sinners and that we must be prepared for that second coming of Christ. And the way to be prepared is to believe in what he accomplished when he first came. This should be our gospel message. So, one, Enoch walked with God in terms of what he said, what he preached, what he believed. And that's what we need to do. But secondly, Enoch walked with God in terms of his life, in terms of his righteousness, in terms of the way his life was lived day by day, the way he conducted himself, the the kinds of values he had, and the way that those values showed in his life. This is the second way in which Enoch lived. We do know that by implication from Jude because he's preaching against ungodly people because of ungodly deeds, ungodly ways, and ungodly speech that they speak against God, right? And the ungodliness is rampant all around him, and these people are grumblers, they're fakers, they're arrogant, they're flatterers. This is the way they are. But he wasn't that way. He was preaching against it, but by God's grace and by faith in Christ, he was able able himself to overcome these sins. Well, let's see how or and what it means to walk with God. Our first example of what it means to walk with God is in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1. Psalm 1 speaks of the blessed man. Who is the blessed man? according to Psalm 1. We'll see that there is a contrast. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Firstly, we're told that the man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not live his life according to the advice of wicked people. Isn't that a problem that we face, that when we are living in the world, there are people who whisper and sometimes they shout to us and sometimes they dump on us all of their advice. They go on and on and on telling us things that they want us to know. They counsel us, they advise us, they recommend that we live a certain way or do a certain thing, believe a certain way, have certain values, pursue certain goals in life. But the blessed man doesn't walk according to them. He doesn't listen to wicked people. He does not even stand where they are standing in the path of sinners. He will not sit in the seat of scoffers. They scoff against God. This is like Jude 15. Of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They not only speak against God, but they ridicule God. They ridicule the Word of God. They ridicule the people of God. They love to laugh and make fun of people who want to be faithful to God. But the blessed man doesn't do that. He avoids walking with those people. He avoids standing with them, and he avoids sitting with them. Now, he doesn't mean that you leave the world or go live in the jungle and avoid all people at all costs. That's not what he means. What he means is 
Don't listen to them. You have to go to the store. You have to go to work. You have to go to school. You have to go to your employment uh, location. You have to go to places like that and live life accordingly. Yes, but don't listen to the advice they're giving you. Only listen to what the Bible is telling you. Only listen to what God is telling you. Or if you meet another Christian, then the two of you can talk to each other about what the Bible teaches about everything. That's what he's, his point is. And the focus, instead of walking with them, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is what he does. His mind is fixed on the Bible. His mind is fixed on the word of God, the law of God, and he delights in it. He so delights in it, he meditates on it day and night. He's always thinking about it. Whenever he has decisions, whenever he has problems, whenever he has enemies, whenever he has um, uh, illnesses, when, whatever it is, he goes to the Bible to ask God, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? What do you want me to do? How should I please you? How should I walk with you in this life? This is the way the righteous, the blessed man, he lives. Another place we can find a description of how to walk with God is in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, 16. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, endings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The contrast is quite clear. He says that we ought to walk by the Spirit in verse 16. Do not walk or according to the desire of the flesh. The flesh is our natural self, our old nature, the way we were born into the world, the way that we used to think, the way that we used to live. Don't walk and do those kinds of things, but walk by the Spirit. And then he says there's a warfare that's going on. There's opposition. Our old nature and our new nature, walking by the Spirit, are fighting each other. There is opposition, one against the other. He says in 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If we are led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, then the penalty of the law, 
the penalty of the law, the curse of the law, does not apply to us. Then he illustrates, what does it mean to walk contrary to God, contrary to the Spirit? What, what does it mean to walk contrary to those? First he says, immorality, verse 19, it's the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings. He has listed a bunch of sins. And just in case we might think, well, my main sin is not listed there. He says, and things like these, and things like these, whatever it may be, you can either explicitly or implicitly derive all sins or have an application to all sins based on this list. And things like these, whatever the sin is, he says, and he forewarns like a prophet, I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We should not want, we should not indulge, we should not love doing those sins. Whenever those sins are in us, we need to beat it down. We need to fight it. We need to seek help. We need to pray. We need to read the scriptures. We need to avoid the people who do those things because when they do those things, we will inevitably do the same things. Such as when somebody is around who is jealous, he's constantly jealous, and he's pointing out his jealousy and announcing his jealousy, comparing himself to somebody else constantly, eventually, if you're not fighting against it and if you're not speaking against it even to the person or even avoiding the person if you can, if you're not doing that, what will that make you? It'll make you also jealous. Or let's say a drunkard. A drunkard. A drunkard is in, intoxicated by his liquor. He has no self-control over it. What, if you are hanging around him and he said, hey, hey have some yourself. Oh, then have another cup, and then have another cup, and have some more, and have some more. No, no, we'll be fine, we'll be safe, it's okay, we'll drive home, it'll be no problem. He talks like this, then you're going to get drunk. No, what you need to do is avoid him. If he's a drunkard, avoid him. Avoid the liquor, avoid being around it. Do what's necessary to reject it. Because if we don't reject these things, as Enoch did, he says that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no eternal life. If we love those things, if we practice those things, if we do not desire to overcome those things, and day by day, sometimes miraculously, and, and at other times it happens over time, gradually we overcome these sins. We must do so. Because this is the way to heaven. 22 to 24, he tells us, Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, by walking with the Spirit, walking with God, there is fruit, there is good fruit, there is luscious fruit, juicy fruit, when we are with the Spirit. And what comes out of that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. 
These are the abundant things that come out of walking with God. This is what happened in Enoch's life, and this will also happen in our life. We will love God and love people in ways that we have never done before. We will have joy in our life, not fickle happiness that's here for a moment and then gone, like, like, uh, like steam or air that is here and then suddenly gone away. Nothing like that. But this joy will be a joy of contentment. It will be constant. It will be regular in our life. We'll have peace. We'll have peace with God and we'll have peace with one another. We'll have peace in our soul. No matter what happens, no matter what people say, we'll have confidence that we are right with God and we're doing what is right. We will not be uh, those who have constant anxiety and turmoil and uncertainty and dissatisfaction in our life. We'll have peace. Peace with God and peace with one another and even peace with our own conscience. Patience, patience reflects who we are. Impatience used to characterize us and now patience characterizes us. We can put up with a lot of things that go on in our life. We're able to endure. We're able to say, well, after this, it will be better for me. After this, things will work out. It will, everything will work out. I have patience uh, uh, and I have faith that everything will be fine. Kindness. We used to think of ourselves only, ourselves only, and we were not kind. We were kind only if it was politically advantageous to us. But now kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. We know it's our duty. We know it's an outflow of our relationship to God. So we are naturally, now with a new heart, we are walking in kindness. Goodness. We're looking after those things that are good, that are wholesome, that are sound, not things that are evil. Our mind is now bent on things that are good. We want to do good. We want to be good to our, uh, our family, or to our friends, to other people. We don't want to be mean and cruel to them. We don't want to do evil things to them. As it says in Psalm 120, verse 7, I am for peace. I am for peace. I want good things to happen. I want peace to happen. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness toward God. That faithfulness toward God. Faithfulness. Notice that word. Fullness. It's a combination of two words. Faith and fullness. Faithfulness. This is the way we will live. Not wayward, not tossed here and there, not fickle, not here today, gone tomorrow. No faithfulness, steadiness in believing what the Word of God says. Gentleness also. Gentleness. Instead of the harshness and the bitterness of the day-to-day -day living, we, we are inculcating gentleness. We are producing this kind of gentleness, softness, not weakness, not cowardice. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being gentle in the way that we talk, in the way that we walk with one another. And self-control. Self-control. We used to indulge. We used to do whatever we felt like doing. We had no control of the mouth. We had no control over our basic passions. But now, 
We desire it. Now we are overcoming it. Now we are practicing self-control because God's Spirit, through His Word, is working in us to help us. To help us with the things we see, the things we hear, the things we say, the things we do to have some self-control. These are all characteristics of walking with God. Walking by the Spirit. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And he says in 24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have crucified our flesh because we said when we converted, I know I'm a sinner. I come to you for forgiveness of sins. I want to reject my sin. I want you to save me from my sin. You are now my Lord and Savior. I will not live for myself. I will live to you because you died and rose again on my behalf. So all of these passions and desires of the past, I put them away. I crucify them. I bury them. I want nothing to do with them anymore. So he says in 25, if, and by if he means since, since we live by the Spirit, did the Holy Spirit not open our eyes? Didn't the Holy Spirit change our heart? Didn't the Holy Spirit give us life? If the Holy Spirit gave us life, then we ought to also walk by the Spirit. Why would the Spirit of grace open our eyes and then say, okay, I opened your eyes and now go live as you want? No. The Spirit of grace not only changes us from being dead to living, but once we are alive, He teaches us and guides us and strengthens us to walk according to the Spirit. The Spirit of grace that saved us from our sins and condemnation is the same Spirit who strengthens us to live by His grace. He graciously strengthens us to live our life according to the will of God. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. That does not characterize us. It did not characterize Enoch, and that should not characterize us. So, when it says that Enoch was pleasing to God, and that Enoch walked with God, he did so in his doctrine, in what he believed in his theology about the first and second coming of Christ, but he also did so in the way he lived his life. He was pleasing to God by the way he lived. Shall we be the same? In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the midst of an evil and adulterous generation, shall we live differently? Let us please God. And let God also say of us one day, well done, good and faithful slave. And when people look at us, may they look straight at Jesus and say, Jesus did a miraculous work in him. Or Jesus did a miraculous work in her. Praise be to God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this example of Enoch. And it's our prayer that we'll not just read and study and see what your word says, but Lord, give us what we need to overcome, to overcome this world and to overcome our sins. Day by day, Lord, strengthen us and renew us. Grant us the fruit of the Spirit in everything we do. Help us, Lord, 
we plead with you, not only to give us understanding, but give us grace to live according to what we understand. In Christ's name, amen.